Welcome back to Bible time. First Thessalonians 4, 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Here in this text, we have a contrast between the ugliest ugly of mankind and the most beautiful glory of God himself. The ugliest ugly of the fallen nature of man is his downright uncleanness, his piggishness. The Bible says that man in his sin is like a dog that returns to his vomit like a sow that wallows in the mire. You can wash the pig. You can get it all clean. You can tie a pink bow on its neck and you can give it a kiss on its nose and it will turn around at the next opportunity and run for the nearest mud puddle. If you give it its food, it will wallow in its own food as it eats it and while it eats it, and it will enjoy every second of it because the pig by its very nature is unclean. And this describes man in his uncleanness. The dog will go out and eat itself sick on disgusting roadkill, on rotting carcasses, and it will eat and eat and eat until its stomach is swelled and it can't hold anything else. And then it will turn around and vomit it all up. And no sooner does it finish vomiting all of that puke up, then that dog will turn and begin to eat on that vomit that it just vomited, even though it was so full that it couldn't hold it the first time. That's the dog's nature. A dog does that because a dog is a dog. A pig does it what it does because a pig is a pig. And in the Bible, the the uncleanness of man, the sin of man is likened, the sinner man is likened to the pig that goes back to its wallow and the dog that goes back to its vomit. And the Bible says here, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And that contrast is an extreme contrast. The holiness of God is God's greatest attribute in Revelation chapter chapter 4 and verse 8, the um, 4 and 20 elders, I'll better turn there so I make sure I get it right, but those in heaven um, cry out to God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, holy, holy, holy. There is no other attribute of God that is so proclaimed and so cried out before the throne of God as God's holiness. The four beasts had each of them six wings about him, it says, and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying, holy, Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when these those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. God's holiness is what is extolled at the outset of this great worship service in heaven. As the as they cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We have for our theme song here, um, holy, 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 a beautiful song written for to extol the holiness of Almighty God. God is holy because God is holy. God does not try to be holy. God just is holy. It is as much part and more part of God, of who God is for God to be holy, as it is for the pig on the exact opposite end of the spectrum to wallow in the mire. As unclean and filthy as man is in his flesh, God is perfect and pure in his nature. (coughs) 
There is nothing unclean or ungodly about our Lord and our Father in heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God. Notice this, that the Holy Spirit of God is named the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's the only word used in the name of God to describe as a descriptive word that's also incorporated in the name of God, the Holy Spirit of God, who is God. The Bible says, now the Lord is that Spirit. Spirit. God is the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost is God. So here we have this contrast, uncleanness versus holiness. Now in Leviticus, you have a bunch of laws dealing with the unclean. Before we look at any more verses, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us as unclean people to attain your holiness and your righteousness. Please help us to be holy, Lord, to attain your holiness and your righteousness, to be like you, because you are holy. And Lord, you've given us sweet and precious promises. I pray, Lord, that you would give us, enable us, and give us the power to be holy in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In Leviticus, it deals primarily with physical uncleanness and all throughout the books of the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the word uncleanness is used many times. In 2 Samuel, we come to another use for uncleanness that parallels the first use of uncleanness in the New Testament, and that is of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was bathing herself on the roof and David saw her and he looked down and lusted after her and he called her up to himself and committed adultery with her, the Bible says, because she was washed from her uncleanness. And here you have a woman that was, um, as our first example of uncleanness in a story, and I didn't read every single one carefully there. If I missed a story, forgive me or shoot me an email and tell me what I missed. But... Here, as, a, as the first example that I saw in the Word of God as a person who was um, washed from their uncleanness, you have this woman going up to the king's house, and she leaves her husband on the battlefield there in, in, in type. She wasn't really with him, but she left him behind to go up to the king's house and commit adultery because she was washed from her uncleanness. Go to Matthew 23 and verse 27. We'll find that this kind of holds true. As a, as a particular theme of religious people living unclean while pretending to be clean. Matthew 23 and verse 27. It says here, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy, and iniquity. So here you have them clean on the outside, but full of sin on the inside. Bathsheba was clean by the Old Testament law. According to the laws of cleanness, she was clean and washed from her uncleanness. But the act that she committed because she considered herself clean was actually worse than the uncleanness that she cleansed herself from. What an irony that is. Here's a woman that the law declares clean, living in a manner that God declares unclean 
unclean because she has for her excuse her cleanness. Do you realize that if Bathsheba had been unclean by the standard of the law that she would not have committed that wicked adulterous act with David and her husband Uriah would not have had to die? Do you realize it would have been less less iniquity would have taken place if she had touched a dead carcass or if she was still menstruous than if she was washed from her uncleanness? And how absolutely true this is of us as people who are called out to be a peculiar people and claim the name of Jesus Christ. How often in our pride and our religion, er, religious arrogance, having been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, have, having had the, um, juris, the jurisdictional anger of God, the wrath of God that was against us because of our sins has been placated and satisfied through the blood of Jesus Christ and with this newfound liberty that we have in Christ being declared clean and justified by faith. What a travesty and what a sin it is for so many who name the name of Christ to return to iniquity instead of departing from iniquity and to use the very cleanness procured by the spotless Lamb of God as an excuse excuse to enter into moral impurity and other wickedness in the sight of almighty God who bought you with his own blood on Calvary. What a travesty, what a sin, what a reproach it is on the name of Christ when such happens. And that is our first example from the Old Testament of someone washed from her uncleanness. There are several other instances of the use of uncleanness in second Chronicles in Ezra and Ezekiel and in Zechariah, where God calls out the nation of Israel for its uncleanness. We find that the nation of Israel while having a outward form of uncleanness or of cleanness, they entered into a wicked form of inward uncleanness, and this resulted in a future outward uncleanness. You see, that which is on the inside gets outside. So they got the outside cleaned up according to the law, but the inside was not clean. There was wickedness, there was filthiness, there was uncleanness on the inside, and because the inside was still wicked, the inside eventually overruled the outside and the inside got outside. And did you know that's going to happen? The Bible says there will come a day when God will reveal even the thoughts of every man. But before that day happens, well, we're still living in this body. If we continue to allow uncleanness on the inside, that uncleanness is going to flow over to the outside. What you are on the inside today is what you will be on the outside tomorrow. If you court wickedness and immorality and adultery and theft and covetousness and pride and malignity and evil speaking and dirty thoughts and all those things on the inside, someday they're going to come out on the outside. And it's just a law of reality, a law of our existence, that that which is in the heart is that which comes out of the heart. Jesus said, from out of the heart proceed adulteries, fornication, uncleanness, etc., etc., etc. It comes out of the heart. And if the heart is not clean, then it will soon translate out to the body. Romans chapter 1 God here deals with um, people who have been not been thankful when they knew God. They glorified him not as God. Get over that passage, if you will. Um, Romans chapter 1, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was darkened. The Bible says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. 
Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So these who had known God are then the ones who are in most danger of uncleanness whenever they glorify him not as God and are not thankful to him as God. And this is a reality throughout the Bible. In fact, the more you know God, the more in danger you are of offending God because you get used to your knowledge of God. Someone who doesn't really know God a lot of times isn't going to commit the same sins that someone who does know God will turn around and do. And what a travesty that is. But here it says that God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart. God cut the lines that were holding them. The Holy Spirit backed out of the way. The Holy Spirit stepped aside and allowed them to go and do what they wanted to do. We're seeing this happen in the United States of America in these days, um, in this 21st century, as our people have wholesale rejected God, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. And we see that God has given over this nation to uncleanness. And people are are going after uncleanness in such an astonishing and open and debauched and wicked, immoral, open way that it is shocking to even people who are lost that have never heard of God. People in the Muslim world, a lot of people, Mohammedans and Muslims, are offended and shocked at the filth that is coming out of the United States of America. People in Turkey, and people in India, Hindus, other people all around the world, the Chinese to a degree even as communists and atheists that deny God are shocked at the filth that is coming out of this nation. I saw something um, not too long ago where the um, leader of Russia made statements that he felt like America was being ridiculous with the whole gay and transgender argument, the sodomite question, and he's saying, and he himself expressed some kind of surprise at the mess that America is making out of its own country for the sake of extreme immorality and uncleanness. We are bending over backwards in this country to commit sin. We are working overtime doing those things which are not convenient, putting all of our time and effort and strength and resources and energy into producing uncleanness. And this happens when you are given over to uncleanness. In Romans 6, dealing with the saved, um, he brings up uncleanness again in Romans 6 and verse 19. But I, he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. And here we find again another place in the Bible where uncleanness and holiness are in direct contrast. As ye have yielded your members to uncleanness, now yield your members to holiness, he says. Here in this text, we find that the two are directly at odds. Uncleanness and holiness cannot exist in the same place. Holiness is something that is clean perfectly. Uncleanness is something that is defiled and no longer clean. The two are as opposite as light and dark. Well, holiness is light. Uncleanness is darkness. (coughs) 
These are exact opposites. Um, down in 2 Corinthians 12, we find that Paul had to rebuke the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians for sin and wickedness. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he warns them in verse 21, And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I should be well, shall be well, many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Now here we see that while uncleanness and holiness are polar opposites and while we are called to holiness just like 1 Thessalonians 4 7 says Christians still commit uncleanness and lasciviousness and ungodly unholy acts he even included fornication and he told the church you he says you better watch out lest when I come back you've not repented of your fornication Christians can commit these wicked sins and should not that's why we're being exhorted in the word of God that God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now, if you go down to Galatians, that is listed, uncleanness is listed in the fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Ephesians 4, 19 also mentions uncleanness. If you'll turn there, it says... Well, wrong chapter here, 419. He says, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So these people in verse 18 have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And he's telling the Ephesian church that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. He's saying you should not walk in uncleanness. Uncleanness comes from those that are blind, those who are walking in blindness and not in the light of the word of God. And no Christian should be involved in uncleanness. Chapter five, verse three, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saints. It is absolutely forbidden for the Christian. Go to Colossians. Absolutely forbidden for the Christian to engage in uncleanness even one time. You might say, what is uncleanness practically? Uncleanness is any act of defilement, any act, (coughs) excuse me, any act of defilement, any act of sin, any act of immorality that is contrary to God's word. The Bible talks abusers of men with themselves and other such things. There are all kinds of different ways of uncleanness. Defiling yourself with pornography is uncleanness. I saw a recent statement of faith. I was looking at an organization they had in their statement of faith and they included pornography and fornication saying a Christian should not do it. I agree with them. A Christian should not do it, but pornography is uncleanness. Fornication is an act between two people, and it's not, and it's different. But fornication and, and uncleanness, though they are different, they are both forbidden. They're just different types of sin. And so, this idea that a Christian can look at dirty magazines, can look with lust, can look at all these lewd pictures, or can commit acts of self abuse and use their body, abuse their body to produce sensual gratification, all of these kinds of things, all of that kind of defilement is uncleanness in the sight of Almighty God. Uncleanness is forbidden by God. Let it not once be named among you. In 1 Thessalonians, the book that we're studying, we've got to hurry today. 
1 Thessalonians um, 2 and verse 3 tells us, Therefore our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. And that uncleanness deals with hidden sin. He's telling you we came to you in purity. We were not holding hidden sin. You see, the difference between hidden um, uncleanness and fornication a lot of times is it can be covered up. See, a man can be unclean, dirty. Go back to that Levitical law of the woman who is during her monthly time, her monthly um, time frame there and the difficulties that come with it and the laws that were involving that, a woman could hide that. A woman can hide that she was going through that time and not tell anybody, but God said that, but God in his law said that she was um, to separate herself during that time. And that's a physical uncleanness, but you can hide uncleanness in your heart a lot better than you can hide fornication. Fornication takes two. It takes two to tango, they say, and um, fornication takes two. To get involved in something with someone else is an outward sin, whereas you can commit uncleanness every day, all day. You can commit uncleanness sitting in a church pew, holding the hymnals, singing the song. Will you eyeball somebody in the church and check them out in an ungodly way and think with lust and entertain dirty thoughts? You've got uncleanness. Uncleanness can be hidden, but it's no less, um, no less condemned by God. And it's interesting here that God God did not say uncleanness. God hath not called us unto fornication, but unto holiness. Instead, he said, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. You see, fornication is often the outworking of uncleanness, more of the result of uncleanness. God's interested in your holiness. God wants you to be pure in your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Second Peter, um, well, we've got our text there, um, 4, 7, that we've read. And then 2 Peter is the next mention in the New Testament of uncleanness. Go there quickly. 2 Peter 2 and verse 10. 2 Peter 2 and verse 10. It says here, speaking of the ungodly, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. This gives us a big clue as to what uncleanness is. Uncleanness is unfettered flesh. Uncleanness is flesh turned loose. Uncleanness is flesh lit on fire with lust. He says, chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. He goes on with many other things pertaining to these ungodly that will be punished in Second Peter. And you can get all that to understand the context more perfectly um, later if you'd like. We've got to keep moving. Holiness now. Holiness that we looked at in Revelation 4.8. Go back to First Peter. In Revelation 4.8 they cry, Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. To the Lord God Almighty, 1 Peter 1, 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. As he which hath called you is holy, be, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And then he quotes the Old Testament. I believe it's Deuteronomy 26, 19, but I didn't tra- chase that reference down. 20, Deuteronomy 26, 19, 1 Peter um, 1, 16 says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I 
I am holy. Now, there are many, many, many more times that God told the children of Israel, be holy for I am holy. I, the Lord, thy God am holy. I, the Lord, thy God am holy. I, the Lord, thy God am holy. Over and over and over and over again, God told the children of Israel to be holy because he was holy. Go back to second Peter and chapter three, verse 11, where we are exhorted to all holy conversation that every part of our life ought to be holy. And that would be second Peter three and verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? God says there's a judgment coming. This earth is going to be burned up. Look at the context. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That thing's burning at over 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit in order to burn the most heat resistant element. Over 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. This earth is going to burn. There is not going to be one object left that is recognizable when God gets done with this earth. He's going to melt down the elements and recreate the earth with whatever substance is left when he's done. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible tells us that because this is coming, because God is going to judge the earth, because our God is a consuming fire, what manner of persons ought ye also to be in all holy conversation and godliness? 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, The temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And he says, If any man defile the temple, him will God destroy. God is serious about holiness. God has called us to holiness and God is going to hold us to his holy, righteous standard. If any man defile the temple, him will God destroy. The temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, that we are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Hebrews 12, go there quickly. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord without which no man shall see the world, the Lord God is holy and you will not enter into his presence with iniquity in your heart unless you are entering to be judged. God is holy and he demands holiness from his people. God is a holy God. Hebrews 12 here says, Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Now I want to go to Leviticus 15. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time between this and one other chapter, primarily in the New Testament. Go to Leviticus 15. Let's look at this passage in a little more detail. And let's look at it in the, um, with the enlightenment of the New Covenant. Now this in Leviticus 15 was given to the Jews. The Le- book of Leviticus means that it was for the Levites. This was the priestly um, rules and regulations. And the priests were in charge of enforcing and making sure that the laws of cleanness were enforced. And so here in Leviticus 15 are laws of some of the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. There's many other places. Levit- Leviticus 5, 7, 14, 16, 18, 22, um, and many verses in those chapters. But here in verse 15, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. 
When a man hath a running issue out of his flesh because of his issue, he is unclean. Now that ties back to that verse that we looked at in Second Peter. I'm going to go back there real quick and pick it up. I wasn't intending to. Bear with me. Second Peter 2.10. It says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Here in Leviticus 15, it says, when any man hath a running issue out of his flesh because of his issue, he is unclean. Now, this whole passage, it deals with um, physical laws of cleanliness that you would um, find uh, applied in many cases in our hospitals and in other settings like that. Important things for a social group of people. But God didn't just write this for social rules and regulations. God didn't just write this for the CDC, Center for Disease Control. God wrote these things for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come, that we might not lust after evil things as they also lusted. These things are written so that we can have warning. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for exhortation and righteousness. So here... (coughs) This application that we've shown you can be directly made to Second Peter 2.10 and to the other texts in the Bible that deal with this uncleanness, that the uncleanness mentioned in the New Testament is a spiritual uncleanness. The Old Testament uncleanness deals primarily with a physical uncleanness, but we've already observed that Bathsheba's physical cleanness did not prevent her from committing an act of physical uncleanness because she was unclean in her spirit. And the man that called her was clean outwardly, but he was unclean inwardly as he was lusting after her. And his inward spiritual uncleanness resulted in an act of ultimate uncleanness of adultery. A wicked and filthy, vile act of sin against Almighty God because of his inward uncleanness. And that inward uncleanness is what we are going to focus on in this text as we look at Leviticus 15. This man that hath a running issue out of his flesh. What does that mean? What is, what does this mean? This is the man whose flesh dominates his life. This would be a professing believer, but one who thinks and acts in the impulses of the flesh. This is a man whose reactions come from his flesh. His life is ordered by his flesh. He has a fleshly mind. He has fleshly thoughts. He has carnal appetites. He rules himself somewhat by the word of God because he professes Christ, just like a child of Israel who is a Jew that keeps the law and keeps the Sabbath and goes up to the temple to offer the sacrifice. But in his heart, he hasn't been, he hasn't yielded himself to the cleanness of Christ. He's not put on the righteousness of Christ. Do you remember how, how Romans 16 says, as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness, even so now yield yourselves unto God. And you're to yield your members unto the Lord and not to uncleanness. This is a man who has not come to this point. This is a man who is saved by grace in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But though he's saved by grace and he's saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still trying to endure to the end. He's still trying to hold fast himself. He's still relying on his own personal discipline 
his own personal intellect, his own personal understanding, his own personal willpower, his own personal strength in order to be a good Christian. But in the meantime, he finds there is a running issue. Now, some guys can live comparatively free and easy lives as a professing Christian in this world without letting their flesh get all out over everything. But most people aren't that way. And a few people are exceptionally bad at that. This preacher has proven himself to be one of them. And it's only because of this preacher's wickedness, this preacher's uncleanness, this preacher's vileness as a Christian that was um, ended by Almighty God when he came down one day and hallelujah to his name and changed me and taught me these truths that this preacher can even preach the word of God. And this preacher, if he doesn't stay close to God and follow these principles that I'm sharing with you today, tight and close, this preacher real fast tends back towards that old vomit and that old sow wallow. And it's a disgusting and hateful fact that this preacher has to battle with his rotten, stinking flesh. But every one of you out there has a, has a flesh too. You may be stronger than I am, probably are. You may be able to last longer than I am in the strength and energy of your flesh. You probably can. But at the end of the day, unless you get a power greater than yourself involved in your so-called sanctification, you're not going to make it. Now, this man in our text in Leviticus has a running issue out of his flesh. That means it's continual. It's repetitive. No matter how many times he gets it clean, it keeps on coming back unclean. Now, I don't know what this might be physically. Maybe this man's incontinent. Maybe he's got bladder control issues, and every time he takes a step, he leaks a little bit. And so he's having to wear stuff to try and keep from his dirtiness and his uncleanness from getting out all over everybody. But in any case, he's got a running issue. You can think of the woman who came behind Jesus in the press and the multitude and the Bible said that she had a, she had a running issue of sorts. I can't remember if the New Testament called it that. What it call it? An issue of blood, the Bible called it. There's your running issue. That means that she had a steady trickle of blood. It was probably not a, very much or she wouldn't have been able to walk around or anything. She would have been bedridden. But it was just enough that she was never clean. And she had not been able to be healed. She'd spent much at the doctors. And there's some Christians out there that may listen to this who have spent much at the doctors. They've gone to the, the, to the help books. They've gone to the philosophers. They've gone to Christian counseling. They've asked their pastors. They've had accountability partners and they've tried to stop the issue of the flesh, but it just keeps on trickling. And I'm telling you today, there is hope for you today. And that hope is found in the holiness of almighty God and faith in almighty God. Here's this one with the running issue. And like that woman that followed Jesus in the press, she was considered unclean. And this one with the running issue, when he tries to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, it comes to pieces. It doesn't work out. He tries and tries and tries, but every time he tries, he fails and he can't really get involved in anything. He's kind of scared to get involved because as much as he wants to serve the Lord and as much as he loves the Lord, he, ha he knows he's got so many problems. He knows he's got so many defeats in his life that he's terrified of actually coming to a place of responsibility where people are looking up at him because he knows that that flesh that's inside of him is just waiting to get out and 
And then whenever he gets that flesh out there in public in front of everybody and he's in a position of responsibility and possibly leadership, that that flesh is going to ruin and destroy and make unclean and defile. And he might not even help in church. He might not even go soul winning. He might not even do anything for God because he's terrified of the running issue that's in his flesh. That nasty sin nature that's got him by the ear and he can't quite whip it no matter how hard he tries. He might cry. He might moan. He might weep. He might beg God for mercy, but it seems to never come. I've got hope for you today from the word of God. It says, this shall be his uncleanness in his issue, whether his flesh run with his issue or his flesh be stopped from his issue. It is his uncleanness. Every bed whereon he lieth that hath the issue is unclean. And everything whereon he sitteth shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And he that sitteth on anything whereon he sat that hath the issue shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And he that toucheth the flesh of him that hath the issue shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And this goes on and on and on. It says, and if he that hath the issue spit upon him that is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself and water and be unclean until the even and what saddles soever he rideth upon that hath the issue shall be unclean and whosoever toucheth anything that was under him shall be unclean until the even and he that beareth any of those things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even and whomsoever he toucheth that hath the issue and hath not rinsed his hands in water he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even and the vessel of earth that he toucheth, that which hath the issue shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing. So you see at the end of all that, that there is hope that that man with all that uncleanness may be cleansed. At the end of all that list, he may be cleansed. Now this man will see, will be able to see this in parallel with Romans chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there real quickly. Now this could deserve its own its own standalone sermon. Maybe someday we'll do that. But right now we're um, just going to stick to this and hurry on through it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This carnal mind can have a whole nother application that we haven't made. And it might not be sin and temptation. It might be that this carnal mind cannot truly fully comprehend God's amazing grace and get settled about salvation. It might be that this carnal mind struggles with believing that God really saved him. Or believing how to be saved. And the answer to that problem is found here in this same passage of Scripture. You see, whatever it is, whatever your struggle is that is a fleshly struggle, it's still a fleshly struggle. And the answer to the flesh is the Spirit. The answer to overcoming the flesh is found in the spirit. You keep on getting counselors, helpers, um, counseling time with your pastor, more sermons, more this, more that, more books, more everything else under the sun until you get a heavy dose of the Holy Spirit of God. You're not going to get freedom. And when you do, you will. 
That's the answer to the whole problem. I just jumped ahead and told you the whole thing. It says in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So that man has been looking with lust, and he wants to overcome that look with lust, and he purposes in his heart not to look with lust, and he gets an accountability partner, and he, and he memorizes special scriptures, and he does everything in his power, and he goes to church, and he's sitting there in the church house struggling to try to not struggle. You're in the flesh. If you are struggling to not struggle, you are carnal. The battle to not struggle is a carnal exercise of fleshly will. That's what it is. The battle not to battle or the battle not to not to have a battle is an evidence of a carnally minded walk. The carnal mind is enmity against God and your mind constantly striving to go towards something ungodly. Or maybe it's a doubt. I don't believe God about that. I don't believe this in God's word. Maybe this part of the Bible isn't true. How do I know that this Bible really is God's word? I'm not talking about asking legitimate questions and seeking them out. But I'm talking about when the question has been answered by God's word and you can't get any peace. It's evidence of a carnal issue of flesh. It's a running issue of the flesh. And it's only healing is going to be found in the fountain of living water, in the Holy Spirit of God springing up from within and cleansing. (coughs) And cleansing that man from the inside out. So here you have this running issue of flesh, this man that we've read about in verse eight. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We'll observe here. If I can see my notes, we'll observe. It says, it says here, we'll observe how this man polluted everything he touched. Now, this may be the meekest, mild-mannered, most loving and gentle, generous, talented, etc. man. But because of his running issue, everything he touches becomes unclean. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is as a city that is broken down and without walls. And every time you get around sin, you cannot, you have no power. Instantly in a battle, that's evidence of carnal mindedness. Every time something gets said a certain way, you're thrown into doubt and confusion. That's evidence of a carnal mind, a city that is broken down and without walls. The walls need to be built again. The answer to this problem is either salvation for the false convert or sanctification for the true convert. Romans 8, 9 here clearly teaches that a man without the spirit of God is lost, undone, and hell bound. Look at it there. It says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So in the middle of this dissertation from the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God on the spirit-filled life, Paul stops to, to check. Here's a check spot. Wait a second. If you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of His. You're not even saved. This doesn't apply to you if you're lost. But if you are saved and still struggling, this is who this passage is aimed at. And that's what it says in the next verses. Um, here in verse 10. 
Verse 10 and 11 give a promise of the quickening, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that is available to the Christian. Look at it here. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. You. This quickening is the equivalent word of resurrection. This is telling you that God will raise up and quicken and make alive your mortal body, your flesh, by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now that will happen to your physical cells at the resurrection of the dead. But in the meantime, that will happen to your nature on a daily basis as you yield to the Holy Spirit of God and believe the word of God for the power that God extends to you through grace alone to have your mortal body quickened so that if you walk in the spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You will not sit and worry all day long as a Christian about whether or not you're really saved if you're walking in the spirit. It's impossible. You will not sit around all day burning with lust towards your neighbor if you are a Christian, if you are walking in the spirit. It is impossible. If you're a Christian and you're in either of those states or any plethora of other ones, call it covetousness. Maybe you sit around all day meditating on how to increase your wealth and your net value. That's covetousness. If that's where you're living, it is sin. Now, I know our culture values and esteems and gives reverence and respect to men who know how to handle money and spend their whole life chasing it, but that doesn't make it any more right than the porno. It is no more right. I find it ironic that in this country, um, pornography has been considered a sin in our churches for decades. Well, it runs rampant through the world, but our churches are full of covetousness. And everybody trying to get rich and get wealthy and laying up treasures on earth and holding out on treasures in heaven and unwilling to risk their financial security on earth for even one soul. And yet we point our long fingers and our long noses across the road at all the lost people and their pornography and their liquor and everything else whenever we're full of sin ourselves listen you cannot covet if you're filled with the spirit now we have to slow down here because this is a lot and this is really the whole bulk of the message if we get nowhere else and if this is too simple i'm sorry this is all i've got But this is everything right here. If ye walk in the spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. You fear mongers out there. You fear mongers. Somebody says something in the next 12 hours, 16 hours, 48 hours. You spend racked with fears, um, thoughts coming into your mind, worries, all these things hitting you. Whenever God has told you to take no thought for the morrow, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You are walking after the flesh. If you live after the flesh, ye shall shall die. What's the answer to the issue of your flesh, fear mongers? What's the answer? The answer is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If you walk after the if you look at verse 13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So here it brings us into eternal security, the great question, the great um, debate, the great doctrine of eternal security. Now, let me tell you something before we get any further on that. 
Jesus Christ offered eternal life. He, and he offered a present salvation. And the salvation that Jesus Christ offered was eternal. And anybody that preaches that Jesus Christ saves you temporarily and on conditions is preaching another gospel. It's a false gospel. It is not the gospel of the Bible. And anybody that preaches a get out of hell free ticket, easy believism, where you go and get saved by praying a little prayer or getting baptized or confession or catechism or indulgences or any other kind of false doctrine like that, 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 and then you can go live however you want to live, is preaching another gospel as well. The reality of the word of God is that Jesus offers eternal salvation. And that no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand if you're really saved, not even yourself. If you're so stupid as to think that you're strong enough to pluck yourself out of the Father's hand, then I wonder if you ever have been saved. What a joke. You think you're stronger than God? Oh, but I can jump out of his hand. How stupid do you think God is anyway? Jesus said, all that the father hath given me shall come to me and him that cometh to me, I shall in no wise cast out. And he said of them that God has given me, I have lost none. And you think that God's going to lose you. You have a small God. If that's your doctrine. Now, moving on from there, this eternal security in the Bible is not once saved, always saved carte blanche for all men. Christ died for all men. Therefore all are saved. No, especially them that believe those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which you cannot do apart from repentance, by the way, it's impossible. But if you truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says thou shalt be saved. If you're saved, you're eternally saved. Now he says here, as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God for ye have not received the spirit of a bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, father. Now, this spirit of adoption is dealing with the witness of the spirit, evidence of salvation. And this whole thing, this whole idea, this whole understanding and true doctrine in the scriptures of eternal salvation here rests on this one fundamental concept that has been, dis has been dismissed from fundamentalism, by the way, of walking in the spirit. All true assurance of salvation rests on being led by the Spirit of God and walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit of God. If you are not filled with the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit, then you're walking after the flesh, though you're not in the flesh. And if you're walking after the flesh, the Bible says, ye shall die. Now, there's a physical death the Christian will enter into that is not the eternal death and of damnation and separation from God. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss. Nevertheless, his soul shall be saved, yet, so, yet as it were by fire. And I probably butchered that verse up. You can look it up and get it in its context. Study it out. <coughs> but this, Lord have mercy, help me. I'm getting totally derailed. So this man that, that is living in sin, he's not living in the spirit. He's not walking in the spirit. Though the spirit of God is in him, the spirit of not God is not flowing through him. The flow is stopped up because of sin and doubt and unbelief. The flow is stopped up because of disobedience to the word of God. As long as this man is in that state, he is going to justly suffer doubt about his eternal state. Even if he's saved. Now, if he's saved, he's saved. 
all the way saved. And he's going to have one miserable life of, of chastening because of his doubts. And he's going to hobble along through his life and be nearly unproductive for God. But if he will ever lift up his eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help, the Bible says, and lay in the dust life's glory dead, like the song says, put his own will, his own mind, his own intellect, his own emotions at the foot of the cross and, and die with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you will walk in the spirit, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have the reality of eternal security. You see, eternal security as a doctrine does me no more good than a great big fat book that I can drop on my toe. If it is not, if eternal salvation is not applied to my own soul and spirit in a way that I can rest in the finished work of Christ, it does me no good no matter how anybody preaches it. And you can preach eternal salvation and not live it. Not have it deep in your heart. It can be something you say with your mouth and understand with your mind, but you have no practical access to. And the access to the freeing rest of the sanctified believer walking in the Spirit to eternal salvation and the comfort of the witness of the Spirit is something to be coveted greedily and sought after with all your heart. Now, your salvation is takes place according to the word of God in a moment of time. Jesus called it a birth, being born again. But sanctification, sanctification, now here, I just had to check myself, is not the process everybody wants to call it. You see, whenever most people today say sanctification is a process, what they actually mean is that you must, with your own will, your own mind, your own heart and its feelings, you must attain to Christ's likeness by the force of your carnal efforts. That's what most people mean. Now, they would argue and say, absolutely not. We mean the Holy Spirit has to do it. And then I would say, well, how does the Holy Spirit do it? And they say, well, you've got to read your Bible. You've got to pray. You've got to fast. You've got to go to church. You've got to go soul winning. You, and it's you, 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 you. You have to do this. You have to do that. You can't wear this kind of clothes. You have to wear those kind of clothes and they betray the reality that their sanctification is carnal as soon as you ask them how to be sanctified. So now some of you are thinking, well, how do you get sanctified? How does the Holy Spirit fill a man? And I'll tell you that here in just a minute, Lord willing. You say, oh, why won't you tell us? Just be patient. Hold on. So here in our text, we have this man with the issue, the running issue. He's unclean. And it's and um, the only promise that we have to overcome this is a supernatural healing. Think of that woman with the issue of blood. The doctors couldn't heal her. She couldn't heal herself. She couldn't fix it. She could mop up her blood. She could wear things to prevent the spillage. She could try and cover it up. She could try and keep it under control. She could even probably regulate her diet so as to not have such a manifestation as it and have probably found some tricks so as to not bleed quite so profusely so that she could live with her ailment, but her ailment remained. And that's as much help as you'll ever get from man. What was it that it took for her to be healed? The woman with the issue of blood, what did it take for her to be healed? Christ. When she touched the hem of his garment, she was healed. 
the moment she did. And while sanctification can be a process in that it takes time and study of God's word to come to a place of letting go of your own effort and trusting wholly and solely in the finished work of Christ to keep you and to give you the power and the desire to walk in a holy conversation in this life, the act of sanctification is not a process. It is a moment, the moment that you come to a sanctifying faith in Jesus Christ that believes that not only is he able to sanctify you, but that it is his will to sanctify you and that he will sanctify you when you trust him and then you trust him. He does it. The Bible says in Colossians, as ye have received Christ Jesus, your Lord, so walk ye in him. It was not a process to get saved, but it was probably a process to get to where you could get saved. There was a process where you were going through your doubts. You were going through your fears. You were being taught. You were reading the Bible. Maybe somebody preached a sermon. You came under conviction and this great work of God, this great process of sanctifying a lost man unto salvation, separating him from the world unto himself and bringing him through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God and repentance from all of his dead works and self-righteousness and false ideas about God and religion in the Bible so that he can trust in Jesus Christ alone was a great process but the moment that that sinner fell on his knees before an almighty God even if he only fell on his knees in his heart and didn't even do it on the outside but he cried out to God Lord be merciful to me a sinner Christ saved him in that moment and he was eternally saved in that moment in the same way your sanctification works you will battle you will battle primarily with your own efforts to please God now that you are saved. That is your biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle that any Christian ever encounters to keep them from the spirit-filled life is their own attempts to please God in their own fleshly carnal strength as a saved person. It's the same thing that's the biggest battle for a lost person. The greatest hurdle to get over. The reason most professing Christians never come to the place of true Christian power and sanctification is because they won't let go of their own good works. They're too satisfied with how good they can be in their own flesh to get desperate enough to fall on their face before God and say, God, how can I even be called your son? I'm not worthy. Let me be called as one of thy servants and be clothed with the robe and the ring put upon the finger. That whole picture is beautiful there can be applied to sanctification just as much as salvation because the process and the result are similar. <coughs> now, this one with the running issue will eventually succumb to disease or infection and die if he doesn't get it healed. And so it is with us. If you live after the flesh, he shall die. It says in Romans eight twelve, um, there is power to be had. <clears throat> there is power to be healed from this dread disease. And is and this is um, I cannot see. Lord, help me. <clears throat> 
there is power to be um, healed from this dread disease. An Israelite with the running issue couldn't partake of the ceremonies or sacrifices. They were cut off, dead while living. And so it is with the fleshly Christian. They can come to church. They can do everything. They can go through the motions. But the effectiveness, the power to do what God has called them to do is gone. It is cut off. And they're never able to truly offer the sacrifices of praise in the house of God as long as they have that running issue. An Israelite with his running issue could never be really sure of his eternal fate because he couldn't get up to the temple and offer sacrifices. He felt completely cut off from God and the coming judgment must have struck fear. So it is with the carnal Christian. Romans 8, 14 through 16 rests the doctrine of eternal security squarely on the shoulders of the doctrine of sanctification by the filling of an indwelt believer with the Holy Ghost. All the glorious promises of Romans 8, 14 through 39, where it climaxes in the most famous verses there at the end that nothing, no man is able to separate us from the Father are precluded by the careful exposition of the necessity for sanctification in the life of the believer. No sanctification, no practical eternal security. If you are saved, you'll never gain the full assurance through the inner witness of the Holy Ghost and you'll never walk in victory and power that God intended you to walk in unless you are filled with the Spirit of God. This is the fall of fundamentalism. This is where fundamentalism has absolutely failed, and that is that they have turned from the letter, from the spirit of the law to the letter. And we've got the letter all lined out, but the spirit left far behind. Unless you get filled with the Spirit of God, you will never practically lay hold on the rest that God intends you to rest in, in the doctrine of eternal salvation, and never be practical practically and effectively useful for Christ, no matter how many ministries you um, preside over. You can have the greatest ministries in the whole world unless you get this truth. You'll be useless in the kingdom of heaven. You'll look great to men and useless in the kingdom of heaven. Popular, well-known, sought-after preacher, greatest ministries ever. Everybody wants to write your biography useless in the kingdom of heaven. How do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? And we'll close. This is really, really, really simple. So simple that we didn't, we're not even going to take more than two minutes on it. So Lord help me. How do you get filled with the Holy Spirit of God? First, you recognize just like you did to be saved that you're absolutely completely void of any power to be, to force God to fill you or to be filled and that you're not filled by default. As long as you believe that heresy, you're shot. You can't be filled as long as you think that you're filled when you're not because you won't seek and ask. And that's how you get it. Just like you got saved, you once you recognize your need, you ask God to save you and he does it, believing him to do it. And just like that, you get filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You recognize your need, you ask God to fill you, and you believe him whenever you ask him. And according to your faith, so be it unto you. That's it. That's how you get filled. There's nothing more to it, nothing less to it. It is the most overlooked doctrine in the Bible because it is so simple. Nobody wants such a thing that's so simple. The reality is that though it's simple, that's not necessarily easy. Our pride hinders us. Our self-righteousness hinders us. Our false doctrine hinders us. Our, what we learned at seminary hinders us because you're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit when you get saved, and that's not in the Bible. Some people apparently have been, but that's not the general case. 
But the ultimate thing for you is that if you want to have victory, if you want to have holiness, this is holiness versus sanctification or uncleanness versus holiness. How do you be holy as he is holy? How? There's only one way. You've got to be filled with the spirit and walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh.